Giants do die. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. Just walk around the Jericho walls. What a song of hope. Does not matter how powerful the forces arrayed against you, the power to overcome them is within you. With the help of the Spirit, to be sure, but you have the power. Just look at those Jericho walls that came down. Talk about faith in human agency. Our ability to build the beloved community despite the powers and principalities, despite politics as usual, despite even the virus. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. You know, that could be a Unitarian hymn. It does, however, direct our attention mostly to the operation of power. And, and I suppose by extension to power as used in politics. Attention to calculations of strength, whether spiritual or political. We're flooded with those calculations these days. Pundit after pundit offering opinions about poll after poll. And we weary of the lies and the half-truths. We weary of the constant fundraising and the amount of money being spent in this election. We weary even of the constant demand for our attention. And so we come here this morning not to hear of more polls or prognostications of rounding the corner or how much is at risk. As this election season draws to a close and we approach election day itself, what reflection do we need to do? What do our spirits need to help us not only survive this election season, but stay centered through it and whatever will follow with our eyes on the prize and some reasonable hope of moving forward? What is it that we need? All the pundits agree that there's a lot on the ballot this year, not just the candidates. Healthcare is on the ballot. Crushing the virus or not is on the ballot. Economic recovery, racial justice, the safety net. So many important, specific policies, we are told, are on the ballot. And there is truth in that. But beyond the specifics, Truth itself seems to be on the ballot, and trust in our system. And even what little democracy we have, that too seems to be hanging in the balance. But both the presidential candidates and virtually all the pundits also agree that beyond any specific policy, what is at stake in this election is the soul of America. Now, that's religious language, and, and we can start there, perhaps, though soul as a theological idea is more than a little uncomfortable for some religious liberals. Just remember that the word in our English Bible, that our English Bible translates as soul, shares a root meaning in Hebrew with the word to breathe. And in this year, when the virus attacks our respiratory systems and George Floyd cry out, I can't breathe. Perhaps we can speak about the soul of America 
the breath and the spirit of this nation, perhaps we do not need to concede that language to the fundamentalists. The soul of America. At stake is at least our identity, that's for sure, and I would argue also the belief in our innocence. And if that is not enough, what is also at stake, I believe, is our path forward. Which path will we follow? And the choices are stark. The question is whether we will move forward toward a world that we actually want to live in, that we might conceivably want to leave to our children and to their children. Who are we as a people? And how do we hope to live? I do believe the soul of America is on the ballot this year in ways it has not been, perhaps since the Great Depression, perhaps not even since the Civil War. Poet laureate Joy Harjo writes, when I think of the soul of the nation, I think of the process of becoming and what it is we want to become. I think we've reached a stalemate right now, she writes. A stalemate. The divisiveness is intense. It is perhaps a sign of the importance of the pivot point we have reached. There's a transformation that is trying to take place, a birthing, if you will. And the old order of privilege and power is fighting a desperate rearguard action to protect their position and prevent the change for as long as they can. At least that's how I see it. The divisiveness and the stalemate are signs of that struggle, that struggle for the soul of America. From Harjo again, bless the destruction of this land for new shoots will rise up from fire, floods, earthquakes, and fierce winds to make new this land. For out of chaos, we will be compelled to remember to bless this land. Out of chaos. But I fear that I'm getting a little ahead of myself because not everyone, even everyone among us, has embraced the need for real change. The changing of so many assumptions, so many ways of being that we have assumed must be part of our normal. That possible future is still in process and that possible future is yet being revealed out of the chaos, as Harjo says. But I am getting ahead of myself, so let's Go back to the 101 level and build from there. At this pivot point, will we turn our face to the future or look to the past? Make America great again. Will our decision be to reject our present and try to go back to a past that never was, a past in which America was white and Christian? No, that's not quite right, is it? Because America has always been multiracial and multireligious, always. From the day the first European settler colonist stepped foot on indigenous American land, 
And from the time the first Africans were brought here in chains, this nation has always been multiracial and multireligious. Make America Great Again does call for a return, but to a return to an America that was for, for the benefit of those who were white and Christian and male and cisgender and able-bodied. Yes, yes, that's closer to the truth. An America also in which the rich could keep getting richer and richer and richer. Now most of us, we can acknowledge this, can't we? Most of us find it easy to reject that vision. We know that vision is code for a system of privilege that had no room for too many of us. A system in which almost all benefits flowed uphill. A system supported by a narrative that kept the rest of us in fear of one another. A system that was devoted to preventing real democracy. And a system that ended up oppressing even the privileged. It is easy for most of us to reject that vision and that backward-looking narrative. But I have to tell you, there is too much looking backward on the other side of the aisle as well. That side of the debate tends to look back just four years and see a golden era when the audacity of hope could still stir our hearts. And we see all of the progress that has been rolled back in those four years, the relatively progressive tax code, the environmental regulations, the international agreements, voting rights, court appointments. We see all that has been lost and all the harm that has been done. We see all that and our first reaction, it's my reaction too at first, is to be stunned that so much could be lost so quickly. I think we all may be just now recovering from a kind of shock, a shock at the magnitude of the rapid reverses, from the tax cuts for the richest to the rollback of environmental regulation. We see all of the harm, all of the loss, and our second reaction is to want to go back to where we were before that loss. And that makes sense emotionally. The first thing we need to do is to end the harm, right? To end the harm, we need to get back to get more of the American people to the polls, souls to the polls on steroids. That's what will make the difference, right? And it can be done. It can be done. Early voting is setting records across the country. People know how important this election really is. In Austin, Texas, voter registration reached 97% in Texas. And the Poor People's Campaign is registering 2 million poor and low-wealth voters. We know this can be done. We do it here in Oregon. It's not a perfect system, not at all, but registration here is relatively easy, and we regularly have 80% of registered voters cast ballots in national elections. And I know, I know that we have been working on this, many of us. The fact that only 60% of eligible voters normally vote in the U.S. nationally 
is part of the system that works against progress and change. What would this nation look like if 80% or 90% of us voted, not 60%? Just imagine that in the harm. Yes, we could. We could indeed. But ending the harm is not good enough. It is not good enough to accept a return to where we were four years ago as normal. Black people were still getting killed by police four years ago. Millions of Americans still survived on food stamps four years ago. Houselessness was still growing so rapidly. Immigrants were still being turned away at our border. Income inequality continued its steady rise. We were nowhere near carbon neutral. Four years ago is not good enough. We need to keep our eyes on a bigger prize. What will we need? What do we need now to sustain a broader, a more embracing, a more hopeful dream? I want to point to a few things to name some of what I think we will need. More, I am certain, will be revealed. There is no doubt. But here is a start. First, and perhaps foremost for me, we have not yet done enough work framing a new story about who we are. We have more identity work to do. And I want to give you just a small example. We react when a candidate for office says that he has done more for communities of color than any president, with the exception, perhaps, of Abraham Lincoln. We put Lincoln on a pedestal, literally. Here in Portland, his statue on a pedestal. The great emancipator, savior of the Union, Lincoln is presented as a saint in our national narrative. And what he achieved, well, it does deserve to be honored. I do not take that away from him. But in truth, Lincoln was a reluctant emancipator. It was only when the Union needed the former enslaved people to finish fighting that war that the Emancipation Proclamation was signed. And Lincoln was prosecuting war against Native peoples and executing dozens and dozens of Native men while the Civil War still raged on. That is why his statue was torn down here in Portland on Indigenous Peoples Day. Lincoln was a supporter of Manifest Destiny. He wanted the Civil War over so that expansion westward could proceed, stealing native land and forcing a cultural genocide, if not an actual genocide, on the native nations in its path. And I ask you to remember that Portland and this congregation were born out of manifest destiny. It's heresy. I know it's heresy. Even Abe Lincoln is not a saint. But we need a narrative that can hold more of the truth of our history. We cannot be satisfied with a narrative that excludes so many of us and so much that was real. And that's just one small example. Part of the spiritual challenge is that 
reframing our story requires us to acknowledge past mistakes and incomplete successes. It requires a giving up of innocence and a more mature, a more secure, more honest ability to know how far we have come in truth and how far we have yet to go. There's a real concern about the violence on our streets and real concern about potential violence should our democracy fail in this election or in its aftermath. The tearing down of those statues and the destruction at the historical society triggered real concern among us. This church does not endorse violence, nor do we endorse or promote property damage. Let me be very clear about that. But we do remain constantly mindful of the impact of state-sanctioned violence on black, indigenous, and person of color communities and individuals. That state violence, repeated over and over for decades, is what prompted and has sustained the protests on our streets. Black Lives Matter is not yet true here in Portland or in this nation. And we are also are mindful of the state violence that would crush our right to assemble and to free speech, our right to protest. Dana and I just this week were present for the hearing in the legal action we joined with the Western States Center. That suit asks for injunctive relief to prevent federal troops and federally deputized agents from general police action in Portland. It's called plenary policing limiting them to protection of federal property. So much of the violence on our streets has been the result of the militarized and federalized police response to constitutionally protected speech and protest. The judge pressed hard on the responses by the government's attorney, and our attorney presented the case so clearly. I was encouraged even if I was stunned by the difference between real life and the law. Though the judge did not rule on the injunction, he has promised a ruling next week, prior to the election, so that the limits of federal engagement will be clear, whatever follows election day. So, there is indeed a lot on the ballot in this election. The resistance to a vibrant, pluralistic future is strong. It is well organized. It is unconstrained by moral limits or by the requirements of truth-telling. And we need to continue to show up, open to more complete stories of who we are and where we are going, open to broader, more embracing stories in which more of us see ourselves and see ourselves mattering, and see ourselves making a difference. So, please, vote if you haven't already. And there is a great deal, there is a great deal to vote for. As our reading said, I'm going to vote right now for the power of a free people to actually be free. I'm going to vote for truthfulness as the norm, 
I'm going to vote for a world that doesn't vote for killing, control, and swagger. I am going to vote for love. We can vote for love right now. Tender love, yes, that, but also tough love and honest love. There is much harm to end and much damage to repair, but we have the building of the beloved community still to do, and we will need all of us to make real that dream. May that be so, and amen. Will you pray with me? Spirit of life and of love, God of our hearts and of our hopes, end times are always also times of beginning. The new creation is always waiting to be revealed. May we find the courage and the strength of heart to live through the coming days, holding a vision big enough to be worthy of our commitment and hopeful enough to be worthy of our love. May we close out the political din as it rises to its crescendo if we need to. There is little to be learned, I fear, and few minds are being changed. But may we discover space in our spirit to hear love's call, to remember our lust for a working tomorrow, and the need to begin moving forward together once again. May that be so, and amen.